Like I said last week, uh, every year at this time, we recast our vision statement. And this year, I'm using uh, what is commonly referred to as the Great Commission to do that. Last week, we looked at verse 18 and talked about the glory of Christ. This week, we're going to look at verses 19 and 20 to consider the good of the bluegrass. I have a lot to say this morning, so let's just jump right in. Jesus is going to do two things in these verses. He's going to uh, give us his command and then his strategy. Let's start with the command. Verse 19, go. That's it. Go is the main imperative of the verse. Everything else that we're going to look at is describing how we should go, but the foremost command is to go. But notice, go is not alone. It says, go therefore, and that matters a lot. The command to go must not be separated from what we, expl- what we explored last Sunday, and it's the word therefore that connects the two. Jesus says in verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In that, we said last week, Jesus is claiming ownership over heaven and earth. But we talked about how it doesn't look like he has ownership over heaven and earth, and this is the dilemma of heaven and earth. So what does Jesus plan to do about this dilemma? That's where the therefore comes in. He says, therefore, go. So let me simplify the thrust of the Great Commission for us. Jesus owns all things, but it doesn't look like Jesus owns all things. So he says, therefore, go. So clearly he expects his followers to go do something about it. We're going to talk about what he wants us to go and do in a moment, but I do want to dwell first on this word go. And my question is, what are the implications of go? And is this an apt description of the way we imagine our role in this world? What we need to understand is that the word go is an offensive word. When I say offensive, I don't mean ugly, distasteful. I mean it assumes quite literally that we are on offense. So last weekend without Kentucky football, blessed be the name of the Lord, I think, uh, I think football is the greatest game ever invented. That's my humble but correct opinion, as <laughs> Stephen Liner likes to say. What makes it... Uh, so compelling is the strategic battle between offense and defense. There's no other sport where that clash is more pronounced. You have offense on one side trying to advance. You have defense on the other side trying to stop the advancement. What the risk of triviality here, if you were to imagine the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world, the gospel's light and the world's darkness playing out on the football field, here's my question. Who has the ball? Who's on offense? How you answer that question says a lot about how you view our calling in this world. What we see in the word go is that Jesus thinks his people are playing offense here. But I think most of us imagine that we are on defense. Go is not the operative word in our minds. It's defend, survive, endure, perhaps even retreat, hide, Hang on for dear life until we get to heaven. But Christ's expectation is go. 
that subtle yet massively important paradigm shift will dramatically change the way we conceive ourselves in this world. The powers of darkness, the works of the devil, sin, injustice, should be terrified of the followers of Jesus, not the other way around. And let me particularize things even more. Everything wrong in the bluegrass should fear Taste Creek Presbyterian Church. When Christ says, go make disciples of the nations, that should not be interpreted as everyone is supposed to go be a missionary to another nation. The point he is making is that he wants all the nations back because he owns all the nations. And so that may mean he is calling you to go to another nation, but it probably means that he is calling you to go to the nation where he has placed you. And so that's why we have particularized our vision here according to where God has us. Our part in this overarching command to go is the bluegrass. So the point I'm making here is that we are not on defense here in the bluegrass. We are on offense. To exist for the good of the bluegrass means we exist to undo that which is not good for the bluegrass. So what is evil, harmful, unjust, within this community we love, is not a threat to TCPC. TCPC is a threat to it. But how? How do we go? If we are on offense, what's the play call? What is the strategy he has in mind here? That's where the details of the commission come in and where I want to spend the majority of our time. So we've seen the command. It's very simple. You're to go. Let's now look at the strategy. Verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. That is it. His grand plan to reclaim the world is to make disciples throughout the world. Please hear me. That's not saving souls out of this world. That is saved souls fixing this world. When he says, I own the earth, therefore go make disciples of all the earth, he is implying that he believes making disciples will be the answer to the dilemma of the earth. Simply put, Christ's solution to creation's fall is Christian disciples. Now, if you find yourself skeptical about how powerful and effective this strategy is, then that only reflects a shallow view of discipleship. Jesus says make, make disciples. And then he gives two qualifying words here which serve as his description of that discipleship. Baptizing and teaching. According to Jesus, making disciples means baptizing and teaching. Again, that may not seem powerful to you, but that, that's because we fail to appreciate the significance of both of those. Baptizing and teaching, rightly understood, will fix the world. So let's take a moment and linger on the details of each of those. Baptizing. Jesus says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. This is by far the most misunderstood aspect of the Great Commission. If you view baptism as nothing more than an individual act that you are making, my individual statement that I want to follow Jesus, then you will not understand the significance of what Jesus is saying here. When Jesus speaks about baptizing the nations, he is talking about building his church throughout the nations. Baptism 
is the initiation right into Christ's holy institution on earth, the church. Who are God's people on the go here on earth? We are members of his church. The church is his institution, his organization, his society, indeed his nation throughout the nations. Okay, well, who are members of the church? Those baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Baptism at its core is entrance into the church just as circumcision served as entrance into Israel before us. So when Jesus tells them to baptize the nations, he is telling them, build my church throughout the nations. Now, if that's what he's saying here, do you understand the power of it? If making disciples means building a global institution throughout this world whose purpose is Christ's glory and creation's good, then now we're talking about something powerful. In fact, Jesus explicitly said earlier in Matthew that I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Again, that is a statement of offense, not defense. This church, this institution is storming the gates of hell and those doors will not be able to withstand that storm. So you, by yourself, as a baptized individual, of course you are not powerful enough to fix the world. Nor is an unorganized, organic, disconnected collection of individuals powerful enough to fix the world. But if your baptism unites you to the corporate institution of God on earth, this Catholic church that we just confessed in there, meaning this universal church, then now you are part of a collective global force that has proven and will continue to prove to be the greatest source of redemption on the planet. So let me pause with just a brief application that is going to sound self-serving, but I'm trying to be faithful to the passage in Scripture. There are many causes, many noble causes, worthy of your energy and resources. But let, let your primary devotion be to the institution of your baptism. Give your life away to Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church as a small yet significant part of the church Catholic. If, for whatever reason, you don't see this church as a place that you can give your life away to, you won't offend me at all. But, and I say this with all sincerity, I would urge you to find a church that you can give your life and resources toward. Would I rather have you as a uh, disconnected guest in our pews, padding our statistic numbers, or would I rather have you as a deeply devoted member of a local church, another local church in our town, give me the latter every time. But how is devotion to the church even defined? Well, at bare minimum, it's membership and selfless service internally, and then we're going to get to the external in a moment. But let me speak to the number one indication of your devotion to Christ's church, your giving. I know nobody likes to talk about money, but there's a reason why Jesus talked about it more than anything else. Because it is the most honest assessment of your priorities. It serves, our money serves as an infallible indication of what we are devoted to. So if you look at my finances, you will see that there are multiple causes that Abby and I are passionate about. 
Assurance for Life, the local crisis pregnancy center, Compassion International, Parachurch Ministries. You will see monthly devotion to many causes that we love. But all of those, add them all up together and they do not come close to our monthly devotion to Taste Creek Presbyterian Church. Now, let me tell you why I felt led to single this out as a direct application this morning in this vision sermon. Um, We're entering our final month of the fiscal year. If you've been around here for a while, you know that at this time of the year, I just prefer to shoot you straight and just be honest and let everybody know where we are going into the last month of our fiscal year. So let me do that. In order for us to meet our budget, we need 375000 in September giving. Last September, we gave 275000 so you can do the math. We need 100000 over what we gave last year to come in this month. So I'm giving extra in September to Christ's baptizing institution. I would like for you to join me in doing the same. Why? For the good of the bluegrass. I believe the church more than anything else is best for the bluegrass. We just planted another one last week. We're going to, it's, it's on to the next one. Churches redeem the world because it's this baptizing institution that Jesus has singled out as his plan to fix the world. There is nothing more worthy of your resources, especially when you consider what churches are called to do. Let's turn to the second descriptor here of discipleship. Baptizing and then teaching. Once again, we fail to realize the significance of that word. Typically, when we think about teaching, we think cognitive education. This is why we often view discipleship as taking someone who doesn't know much about the Christian faith and teaching them information about the Christian faith. So in this way, discipleship is essentially an information dump of Bible and doctrine. Now, I do not in any way minimize the importance of Christian education, but, and this is the key, not as an end in itself, rather as a means to a far greater end, and that is explicit in verse 20. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. He does not say teaching them all that I have commanded. He says teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. If Christian discipleship only teaches about Jesus rather than how to obey Jesus, then it isn't Christian discipleship. This is very important for our tradition, speaking candidly. A major blind spot in our tradition is that it tends to cultivate people who know a lot about Jesus and do very little for Jesus. Jesus says, teaching them to observe my commandments. The world-changing power is in the observing. There is zero power in people who know a lot about Jesus. In fact, Satan knows more than all of us about Jesus. But there is unmatched transformative power in a community of people obeying Jesus in the world around them. What does that even look like on a practical level? Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded feels paralyzingly um, ambiguous. Well, after Labor Day, I'm beginning a new sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. You're going to hear a lot about that in the coming weeks. But one of the reasons why is that during my sabbatical, I became overwhelmingly burdened for us to be an empowered community on the offense 
actually obeying Jesus in this world, actually doing what Jesus tells us to do. Again, our tradition knows a lot about Jesus, but Jesus says, teaching them to observe. I want us to observe. I want us to obey what Jesus commanded us to do. And the Sermon on the Mount is that moment where he gathers his disciples together for a family meeting and says, this is who I want you to be and this is what I want you to do in this world. What is it that he has in mind when he says, observe all that I have commanded you? The Sermon on the Mount is his clearest answer. In fact, exegetically, you can make a strong case that when Jesus says at the end of Matthew to teach the nations to obey him is connected to what he said at the beginning of Matthew where he outlines his commands in the Sermon on the Mount. So, let me sum up all that we have said here. The Great Commission, rightly understood, is this. Go, on the offense, not defense. Go, make disciples of the nations by building my church through baptism and teaching the members of my church to obey what I outlined for you in the Sermon on the Mount. I want a global institution whose job is to embody the ethics of the Sermon on the Mount in this world. That's what we have in mind when we say we are a church that exists for the good of the bluegrass. All right, let me close these two vision sermons with much needed hopefulness. Return to the football analogy. I won't do football all season, but it's, you know, it's on my mind. I asked you earlier if the church was on offense or defense. Now I want to ask you who's going to win. You know how important that is? If you play sports, you do. If a team in any sport goes into the game convinced they will lose, they've already lost. And I just wonder, deep down, in the unspoken honesty of our hearts... If there is a defeated skepticism regarding the success of this passage, regarding the church's success in this profoundly broken world, and I understand that, especially if we walk by sight, not by faith, then yes, it would seem that losing is inevitable. But there's a fallacy in that way of viewing things. When Jesus says, when he speaks of the nations in our passage, he doesn't allow us to arrogantly elevate our nation as the singular or even primary nation within God's unfolding redemptive plan, which is exactly what Americans tend to do. Do you know where the church is growing fastest in our world? the very places Americans tend to view as hopeless contexts, Africa, Middle East, and China. So take Africa, for example. In 1900, there were 9 million Christians in Africa. Today, there are 540 million Christians in Africa. That is a 5,300% increase in one century. So perhaps the church is on decline in our Western context, and one might argue that the purging of power and comfort in the Western context was necessary for the success of the Great Commission, but it is exploding in nations outside the West. You see, unlike unlike us, Jesus has a global and very long thousands of generations view of the Great Commission's success. But 
We need not look at statistics to convince ourselves of hope. We need only to look at Jesus, the embodiment of our hope. Do you know what Jesus was doing a month or so before issuing the Great Commission? Nothing. Lifeless in a sealed tomb. And these disciples he's commissioning in our passage were scattering with fearful despondency of failure. Then Jesus walked out of the grave, leaving hopelessness buried behind him. I do not care how doubtful you may be. I have an empty grave in Jerusalem that says your doubts are a lie. Brothers and sisters, the owner of heaven and earth is risen from the dead. And he told us here at the end of the commission, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's safe to assume the owner will have back what rightfully belongs to him. The risen Lord Jesus owns the bluegrass. And one day the bluegrass will look like it. Let's be found faithful in our small part of giving it back to him for his glory and the good of the bluegrass. Let me pray. Risen Lord Jesus, we renounce our fears and doubts and paranoia of what we see circumstantially. And by faith, we look to your resurrection and declare that the owner of heaven and earth is going to win indeed. Lord, take this meal and lift our hopes once again. We pray in your name. Amen.